Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are visiting with us for the first time, welcome again. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church. And uh, we preach um, verse by verse through the Bible. And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And we will be looking at verses 9 through 11. The title of my sermon is, The Unrighteous Will Not Inherit the Kingdom of God. And for the children, our worshipers in training, the key words are kingdom, justified and sanctified. And we know we all know of the man who called himself a wretch who was lost and blind. His name was John Newton. And he recalled leaving school at the age of 11 to begin life as a rough debauched seaman. He was involved in capturing natives from West Africa to be sold as slaves and then marketed throughout the world. But one day in the midst of his practice, the grace of God put fear into the heart of this wicked slave trader in the midst of a fierce storm on the sea. And greatly alarmed and fearful of a shipwreck, John Newton began to read the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And God used this book to save John Newton. And suddenly, there was a dramatic change in his way of life. Soon after that, Newton sensed a call and began study for the ministry. And he was encouraged and greatly influenced by men like John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, who ministered in Savannah. And at the age of 39, John Newton became an ordained minister of the Anglican Church at the little little village of Olney near Cambridge, England. And to add further impact to what was already very powerful preaching from Newton, he introduced simple heartfelt hymns. At the time, they were used to just singing from the Psalms, from the Psalter. And he wrote and introduced simple heartfelt hymns to be sang in the weekly services. And when enough hymns could not be found that were already written, Newton began to write his own. And oftentimes he was assisted by his close friend, William Cooper. And in 1779, their combined efforts produced the famous only hymns hymnal. And the great hymn, Amazing Grace, came from that collection of hymns. Until the time of his death at age 82, John Newton never ceased to marvel at the grace of God that transformed him so drastically. Shortly before his death, he's quoted as proclaiming with a loud voice during a message. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. In our text this morning, Paul has just finished rebuking the Corinthians because of lawsuits that they were bringing up against one another. And he says, how dare you? Why would you not rather be wronged and defrauded? than to bring up lawsuits against your brothers in the church, but instead 
you even go one step further and wrong and defraud one another. And now in verses 9 through 11, he reminds the Corinthians of God's amazing grace. He reminds them of what wretches they once were. But how God washed them. How He sanctified them. How He justified them. They once were lost, but now are found. Were blind, but now they see. And in this passage, as we're going to read, essentially Paul is asking them, why would you walk in the way of the unrighteous? If God has redeemed you, you will strive for unity and holiness and love. And the unrighteous among you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read verse 9 of chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul begins by saying, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So who's he talking about here? Uh, various trans, translations, um, they mean the same thing, but they all get to the word with synonyms. Unrighteous or wicked or wrongdoer, you may have in your translation. Who are these people? Who are these wicked, unrighteous, wrongdoers? That Paul is referring to who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists in verses 9 and 10. The people who are the doers of these various things that he outlines in verses 9 and 10 are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's look at each one of them quickly. First, those who are the sexually immoral. What is the word he's using there? It's, it's the word, uh, it's, it's the F word for many young people today, fornicators. Anyone engaging in any sexual activity of any kind with a person they're not married to. That's sexual immorality. That's fornication. This is not at all a shocking concept to us in America today, is it? Statistically, in 2007, there were 12 million unmarried partners living together in America. 39.7, of all births are to unmarried couples. And 40% of children live in cohabitating households where 
the two people they're living with are not married. So this idea of fornication, of the sexually immoral, is no novel concept to us. We're very aware of that in our culture. And this becomes more and more an accepted practice in our culture. That fornication is appropriate. And so instead of what only several decades ago was something that no one even thought to consider, it's been turned completely on its head to say, well, how do we know if we're compatible to live with one another? Or how, if we don't engage in fornication, how do we know if we are sexually compatible? And then because of the influence of moralistic teaching, then young people who want to appear to be righteous want to ask questions like, well, how far is too far in my relationship? How much can we engage in before it's actually sin? Because of the influence of the acceptance of fornication in our culture, we've gotten to where all of our practice in marriage, in enjoying and loving and appreciating this gift that God has given to us, we've turned it into a selfish pursuit. And said, how much, how far, that I might enjoy this for myself, instead of asking, what can I do, what must I do to honor God all the more? And so Paul outlines that those who are walking and living and loving this practice of fornication will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to idolaters. Those who worship anyone or anything other than God of the Bible as God. Idolaters. Those who worship anyone or anything as God other than the God of the Bible. And we usually, when we talk about idolatry or we think idolatry, we usually think in terms of little statues and shrines and, and things of that nature. But how many, how many people do you know who worship their job? Or worship money? Or worship sex? Or power? Or sports? Or here's the biggest one the image they see in the mirror from day to day. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to adulterers. This is different than fornicators because it involves one or both individuals who are in that relationship. Uh, they are married to someone else. And oftentimes we just want to assume that adultery is sexual in nature, right? So flirting with someone who's not your spouse, that's okay, right? Joking and chatting in a flirtatious manner, alluding to certain things. I'm not, I'm not actually going to do those things, so it's okay, right? No, <laughs> no, that's not okay. Jesus said, but I say to you that Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, 
not hard for us to understand in our culture. 60% of men, 60% of men, and 40% of women in a marriage at some point commit adultery in America. And so because those aren't the same relationships all the time, brace yourselves, 80%, 80%, 8 out of 10 marriages at some point have infidelity, have adultery tied to them. That blew my mind away as I was looking at these statistics this week. 80%. Our country gets a B in adultery. It's not hard for us to understand what Paul means here. He goes on to homosexuality, or your version may say effeminate. And this passage is specifically speaking of males, but Paul addresses females in other passage. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, he talks about the females. And in verse 27 of Romans 1, he talks of any homosexual desires or passions. So as he speaks of homosexuality, he's not talking simply of those that just... uh, participate in the act of homosexuality, but even the passion and the desire. And so he addresses any form of homosexuality, male or female, to include passions and desires for same-sex relationships. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. He speaks of thieves. Those who take advantage of others by any kind of fraud or secret plot. And yes, this includes cheating on our taxes or giving ourselves a little tip from the company funds because we think we did a good job. The greedy. Those who are covetous. Wanting to keep up with the Joneses, right? Looking across the, across the drive and seeing our neighbors got a new, a new car. It's a little bit bigger, a little bit nicer than ours. We, we better uh, go and start looking down at uh, Effingham Auto Sales to see what we can find for ourselves. The greedy, the covetous, those who are lovers of money will not inherit the kingdom of God. The drunkards. I think it's safe in this context to assume that Paul is including being given over to any sort of addiction. Not just drunkenness of alcohol, but gluttony of food and addiction to drugs. Notice, because we very quickly want to be legalistic when we read this. He's speaking of drunkenness. He's speaking of gluttony. He's speaking of addictions. Not usages, but addictions. 
Those who are drunkards, those who are addicted, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revilers. A reviler is a person who engages in slander. Knowingly and willingly destroying the character and reputation of another person, typically for self-preservation or for the joy of making another person look bad. They wronged me, and I'm going to find a great satisfaction in speaking ill of them. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Swindlers. These are robbers who take another's possessions by force. None of these. No one who regularly, willfully, lovingly walks in these things will inherit the kingdom of God. And it seems absolutely hopeless, doesn't it? If all of us are honest with ourselves, we will find ourselves at some point in our lives in one of these categories or maybe a few of these categories that Paul has listed. How hopeless. What, what are these things? What are all these things that Paul has outlined? What makes these things particularly damning that we would not inherit the kingdom of God? These things are idols of the heart. These things that Paul outlines are idols that rest in our hearts. The 17th century English minister David Clarkson said of idolatry, Though few will own it, nothing is more common. He says to think of your soul as a house. Idols are set up in every room, in every faculty of your soul. We are idolatrous when we prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom. We are idolaters when we prefer our own desires to God's desires. When we prefer our own reputation over and above God's honor. That's what's happening with the Corinthians. Our hearts are idle factories. And they don't shut down. They work and work and work. They're working hard to turn out the next item of worship. The next thing that we will put on the throne of worship. The next affection for something other than God to worship. Our hearts are always at work to crank these things out to put before us so that we can worship them instead of the one true living God. How do we, how do we know? How do we know the idols in our hearts? Let's test ourselves. What, what does your mind go to? When you're, when you're in the quiet, when you're in silence, when you lay down at night and there's not a sound, what does your mind most often go to? What are your hopes set on? What are your deepest longings in the quiet?
These are our idols. These are the things that we worship. Those things which, when the still and quiet arises, that we think the most on, that we desire the most, that we hope the most. Is it God? Is it the promises of God? Is it the joy and satisfaction in Christ? Look, I'm not, I'm not saying that when we turn our minds to think on something else that we are idolaters necessarily, but what most often, what most often captivates our mind and our thoughts, what most often comes to bear on us as we ponder our lives and the breath, the vapor that it is, Not every unbeliever in this world is infected by all of these things that Paul lists. But all of them are prone. All unbelievers are prone to these things. No one is exempt from all of them. Why why does Paul say in verse 9, do not be deceived? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, make no mistake. Some of the Corinthians thought it was possible that one could habitually walk in these sins and yet still be Christian simultaneously. Now, does that sound familiar or what? Particularly in this culture that we live in where everyone is a Christian, This is very, very prevalent. We all know so many people who call themselves Christians, but the entirety of their life proves otherwise. Do you really think because you're raised in a Christian home, or you have a church membership, or you were baptized when you were eight, do you really think that these things mean that you're a Christian? We all know these people, right? And I will say that some of you are completely out of control in this area. 1 John 2:15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world, the ways people sin against God. Addictions to pornography, to drunkenness, to having affairs, to telling lies, to be filled with pride, to be filled with greed and covetousness, to walk in these ways of the world. John says the love of the Father is not in him. And so some people will pretend to be decent Christians outwardly, while in their hearts they're a whole lot more like Judas than Jesus. And walking in the way of the world. And I would be a fool to think in a room filled with so many people this morning that this is not some of you. Check your hearts. Paul says, don't be deceived. 
Do you really think everything is good because you have some outward appearance of morality? When your heart is filled with wickedness and you're a slave to your sin? You see, the problem with that is, and the problem for the Corinthians was that it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. To so many people, gospel Christianity, biblical Christianity is about externally fulfilling some kind of moral obligations and being good enough so that in the end, God will see that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and then grant me a pass and say, welcome, you're, you're good enough. You're good enough. But that, that's not Christianity. That's, that's religion. There's a stark difference. Every religion in the world will tell you it's a battle between doing enough good so that that outweighs the bad. So that in the end, God will put those things in a scale and determine whether or not you are His. That's not Christianity. That's religion. There's others that believe it's a specific prayer or it's a, a specific action like baptism or, or church membership. Are these, are these things important? Yes. Yes, they're very important. But do they save you? Not even, not even close. Not even close. But we hear it all the time, right? Well, he's really living a rough life. But thankfully, he prayed that sinner's prayer 40 years ago when he was eight. What? First of all, What in the world is the sinner's prayer? And second of all, believers, according to the Bible, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long to be holy. They long to honor God. They want to make much of Christ in their life. And they understand that this life is a vapor. And when it all ends... Those who die with the most toys don't win. They die. And they spend eternity separated from God in hell. Salvation is not about saying some prayer when you were eight years old and being dunked under the water and signing a card because you're a member now. Salvation is about hungering and thirsting for righteousness because God has done a work in our hearts to transform us and make us new creations. True followers of Jesus will sin, but they don't love their sin and walk in it habitually. Paul illustrates this very well in Romans 7. He says, I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. His heart is broken over the sin that he cannot pull himself away from. He keeps doing these things that he has a great desire to not walk in. He desires to do what is right. 
And if you're truly a Christian, you realize that it's not just simply some behaviors changing in your life. This is not about behavior modification. This is not about finding a way to be a little bit better than we were before. This is about your desires and your affections all being changed, hating your sin and desiring to do what is good and what is right and makes much of Jesus and very little of yourself. We must understand that the gospel is not doing good so that we can be accepted. And realizing that Christ is enough on our behalf and trusting in His righteousness alone and realizing that the Gospel is all of God and none of us. Paul is not saying, do not do these things that I've listed so that God will love and accept you. That's not what Paul is saying. Don't do these things. Don't walk in these sins because and only after you don't do these things, God has given us new hearts, new affections, new desires, new longings. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying only after God has given you new hearts and new affections and new longings and new desires. Only after that work has been done, then you will no longer walk in these things to which we are prone. It is only after He has reconciled us back to Himself and given the gift of faith and given a desire to repent of our sins and believe on Christ, it is only then which we can walk in the holiness that He prescribes. It is at this point that we are justified in Christ. We are made right with Christ. And He begins that work of sanctification to purify us, to make us holy, to give us a desire to not walk in our former lives. And if you have been walking in years and years of repeated sin, running from God at every turn, while it's ultimately up to God, it's very safe to say that you probably have never been a Christian. If these sins describe your life in some form, You show no signs of being redeemed because you love your sin and your deepest desire is for evil. You don't love God. You might fear hell, but you don't love God. You are your God. And you're a slave to sin because you cannot stop what you're doing and you love it. Let me clarify a few things here. Paul is saying those who habitually walk in these sins are unbelievers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just because someone doesn't walk in these sins, does that mean they are a believer? Not necessarily. What makes us believers? when we repent of our sins 
and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. It's not an external avoidance of sin. Jesus said in the dark of the night to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. You must have new life. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so it's not our same old life, but a few behavior changes. We're new creations. We're new life. We're born again. Do not be deceived. If you do not walk in new life, I bid you repent and believe the Gospel. Because an inheritance, an inheritance belongs in the family. Only the adopted sons and daughters of God will inherit the kingdom of God unto eternal life. But here's the good news for the Corinthians and the good news for us. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Stop right there. These things that Paul listed, for those of us who are Christians, these things that Paul listed were at one point in some way or another, maybe one of them, maybe several of them, were present in our lives. This was us prior to Christ. We didn't love God. In fact, the Bible tells us of our own hearts that we hated God. And we loved our sin. And we sought to fulfill our sin's desire at all costs. Think about it. We went out of our ways to be sinful, right? We found ways to be sinful when it wasn't easy. We went out of our way to make it happen. We set everything in our lives around, how can I make this thing happen so that I can be fulfilled in this sinful desire? Such were some of you. Paul tells the Corinthians and he tells us. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How? By the work of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul humbles the Corinthians and he humbles us by giving us a reminder of where we've come from. He stirs up in our hearts a reminder of the grace of God in our lives. And the greater the misery that we walked in, the greater the grace of God shines through. And when He does that work in our lives, He frees us up to love and to forgive and to walk in holiness and to walk in joy. You know, who would have thought 
that God would have knocked Saul of Tarsus off of his horse as he was on his way to kill more Christians. He was on his way to slay them, to put them to death. And Jesus said, enough. You now, you will follow me. You will honor me. You will love me. Look, it wasn't Paul turning to God and saying, I've had enough of this killing thing. I, I want, Jesus, I, I want you to come into my heart because I know that you love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. No, he was knocked off his horse by the one true and living God. He was blinded in the eyes by his holiness and radiance. And he was told, you will follow me. Jesus kicked down the door and let himself in. That's salvation. That is the work of God that frees us up from the bondage and the chains and slavery to sin that we walk in. He uses three terms in verse 11 to describe the same thing. Essentially, he's saying the same thing here. It's easy to understand in terms of their contrast, maybe. He's saying you were washed. So you were once defiled by your sin, and now you are washed. He's saying you were sanctified or regenerated. You once were polluted, but now you are made new. You are justified. You once were guilty, and now you are justified. You now have a right standing before God. So negatively, he's saying, since you were washed, do not disgrace yourselves with new defilements, but aim at purity Persevere at holiness. Abominate the former evils of your life that you would walk in a way that honors God and brings you the greatest joy in Christ. Since you are sanctified, do not pollute yourselves anew with the sins of the world. Since you are justified, do not draw new condemnation on yourself, but walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Brethren, Christians, we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our soot-stained lives were washed clean by the cleansing blood of Jesus. It was the great exchange. It was the great exchange that my guilt was given to Him. He took my guilt. He bore my sins. He bore the wrath of God on my behalf. And in return, I receive His perfect, unpolluted righteousness. And so as God looks on my record, He looks on me. He doesn't see me to account for myself. He sees Jesus who accounted for me. This is the great exchange. This is the great hope. That Jesus on the cross received the full penalty on my behalf. He was dead and buried three days in the tomb. And on the third day, He rose again. And He sits at the right hand of the Father. And He rules and reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen.
So Christ is the source of all of our blessings. From Him, we obtain all things. When we are in Christ. When we are a new creation. And look, I I think we misunderstand this a lot. When we are a new creation, God delights in us as much on the day He saved us as He will the day that we die. God does not love a future version of you. He doesn't love who you will be as a Christian. He loves you as a Christian now because of Jesus. It's not about you. It is not about in your heart that you've decided, well, I'm going to take this road now. And in time, God will cultivate holiness and purity in my life. Is that true? Yes, He will. But God is not loving you now because of who you will be. He loves you now because of who Christ is on your behalf. It's very important. And might I tell you, it is very freeing. It frees us up to love and to walk in joy and freedom knowing that I'm not loved in Christ because of who I am. I am loved in Christ because of who He is, what He has done for me, that I not need to strive and work and push myself by legalism, that I not try to live up to the standard of moralism because Christ has done that work for me and He's doing that work in my heart. And I can strive and make war on my sin because Christ frees me up to do so. That is the great hope. And it's all because of Jesus. And that grace of God in Christ is applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives and works within us. That's what he says at the end of the verse. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God's grace in Christ came to us because of what Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf and because of the renewing work and power of the Holy Spirit who lives and works within us. And so we can look at our former lives. We can look at when we were living as those who were unrighteous. And we can say, that was me. But I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified. And I now walk in the freedom of the newness of life. And I can look at it all and say, through many dangers and toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Amen. Let's pray. God, Your grace is truly amazing. And we delight in Christ as our final and full payment. That You made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
for wretched, vile sinners such as us. And you rescued us from the bondage of sin. You pulled us from the depths of the murk and mire and set our feet on solid ground in the foundation of Christ and Him crucified. Father, I pray, I pray with all my heart that those in here today who walk as the living dead, that You would awaken them from their death from their transgressions and sins, and You would give them eyes to see and ears to hear that they would walk in the newness of life, that You would make them to be new creations, that they could look back at their life and say, the old has gone, but behold, to me the new has come. Father, humble us in that great reality. That as wicked individuals who hated you, that you came to us, that we would be reconciled. That you called us from death to life. That you knocked us off of our high horse and revealed yourself to us and kicked in the door and let yourself in. What great joy and satisfaction. God, you are gracious and you are merciful. And we are so thankful that we can come together as a people and proclaim that Your grace on us is amazing because it washes us, it sanctifies us, and it justifies us by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us in the name of Jesus Christ. Give us thankful and glad hearts and help us to walk in the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.